Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and the fourth in our series of joint programmes with the Grantham Institute, Climate Change and the Environment at Imperial College London. The Institute is home to some of the world's leading scientists, researchers and innovators, whose combined expertise offer us an inspiring vision of what a zero carbon future could be like. We've already explored net zero, energy and waste, and now we turn our attention to one of the most visible causes and everyday causes of climate change, transport. As citizens in an advanced global economy like the UK, we take for granted our right to travel where we please, when we please and how we please. Most of us own or have access to a car. There are currently well over 30 million cars on our roads, of which less than 1.5% are electric, sadly. But we aren't just in love with the internal combustion engine, we're besotted by the jet engine. In the UK, Britons took over 126 million flights in 2018, and we beat the Chinese and the Americans into second and third place. A huge number of us take flights very regularly. So there's a big issue for us in our relationship with transport. Transport is a significant cause of carbon emissions and to discuss the challenges, the opportunities and how we might rethink our approach to travel both within and outside our cities, I'm delighted to welcome my guests today, Dr. Audrey de Nazelle and Dr. Mark Stettler. Audrey is an expert in risk assessment and exposure science. Her research, is at the intersection of environmental sciences, health behaviour, transportation and urban planning. Her work aims at guiding decision makers towards health promoting built environments and policies. It involves novel and holistic approaches to assessing behaviour and environmental and health impacts of urban plans and policies. She conducted her postdoctoral research at the Centre for Environmental Epidemiology in Barcelona where she developed and led the European study Transportation, Air Pollution and Physical Activities. It's quite a mouthful, that, and Health Risk Assessment, and she will tell us a lot more about some of that work. Mark is Senior Lecturer in Transport and the Environment in the Centre for Transport Studies at Imperial, where he leads the Transport and Environmental Laboratory. His research focuses on evaluating and reducing the effect of transport activity on climate change and air pollution, with particular attention to understanding sources of greenhouse gases and pollutant emissions, especially nanoparticles. So welcome to you both today and thank you very much for coming on the pod. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. This is a huge subject and obviously it's quite hard to know where to start, but I think perhaps if we could pick off with you, Mark, if you could maybe tell us a little bit about the difference between air pollution and the different types of emissions, because I think for many people, we perhaps get those muddled up, the ones that are actually about pollutants in terms of things that affect our health and perhaps things that are affecting climate change. So could you start with a kind of beginner's guide for us? Sure. So in most um, vehicles that we travel in, there is a combustion process that occurs. So we put liquid fuel in, um, goes into the engine, there's a big bang. Um, out of that bang, we extract uh, heat energy. So we transfer stored chemical energy into useful uh, heat energy and kinetic energy propels the vehicle forward. But also as a result of that bang, we get um, emissions. So primarily when we burn fuels, we get carbon dioxide and water, but we also get a range of air pollutants that come out um, of the exhaust at the same time. 
Um, so CO2 is a major greenhouse gas and the other pollutants um, contribute to air pollution and a degradation of air quality. So those could include nitrogen dioxide or nitrogen oxides. They could also include particulate matter, which are the two main species that we're worried about from a air pollution point of view. Okay, and we've done some things on the pod in the past about air pollution. We did a a programme with Hubbub, who had a research campaign looking at uh, air pollution in the city, particularly, and how people were in monitors. And and I think a lot of us are not aware of just how polluted our environment is, are we, and how much we're taking in in terms of the, those damaging pollutants into our system. And is that something that you explore at Imperial, or are you much more about how you kind of prevent pollution going into the system to start with? Well, so we can talk a bit about the levels of pollution that we're uh, exposed to in London. Um, so in terms of nitrogen dioxide, which is one of the primary air pollutants, the annual average concentrations in London are typically above uh, what the EU air quality limit values are, and also above what the World Health Organization would recommend. And similarly for PM2.5, particulate matter, uh, the 2.5 stands for um, particulate matter with a diameter less than 2.5 micrometers. Um, so these are tiny particles that we can breathe in, they can deposit in our lungs, and they can transfer into our bloodstream. Um, the levels of PM2.5 in the air that we breathe are, again, higher than the World Health Organization recommended values. And they're all coming out of the transport system, aren't they? They're not coming from elsewhere? They are also reason. coming from elsewhere. Okay, so, so that's the whole log-burning stove argument that people are giving us, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So um, in terms of nitrogen dioxide... Transport is the major source of nitrogen dioxide in our cities. Um, but in terms of particulate matter, uh, transport is one contribution, um, but there are other, other sources, and you mentioned um, wood-burning stoves, um, industry, um, and also a lot of regional transport of particulate matter from outside of cities comes into cities. What you mean with, with vehicles coming in or just I mean with, in the atmosphere? I mean with sources of, of particulate matter from, say, agriculture, Oh, okay. um, that gets into the air and then um, is blown in with the wind over into the city. And yeah, so, yes, just just to add to that, PM two point five particulate matter is quite complex because, indeed, as, as Mark was just saying, it's not just a question of uh, emitting p- uh, particulate matter; it's also transformed in the atmosphere from the emission of uh, other pollutants, um, in particular nitrogen oxide and volatile organic compounds, and then change into the atmosphere and become PM2.5. So it's quite complex to to tackle because of the multiple sources, including secondary formation. And how do you work out where they're all coming from? Because, I mean, if you want to tackle this, you've got to be able to monitor the, the sources, presumably. Yeah, not only understanding where it comes from, but also understanding which ones are the ones that are that we think are, are more hazardous to our health. Because when we look at particulate matter, we look at just the the mass, how much there is, the concentration of particulate matter. But there's particulate matter and particulate matter. There's particulate matter that comes from, from, uh, from for example, tire and brake wear that has, uh, uh, for example, metals in it. Well, as there's particulate matter that comes from uh, agriculture, uh, agriculture, and that secondarily formed, and the toxicity of each of these different forms of particulate matter is not known. We only regulate particulate matter mass, so the, 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 just the concentration of, of particles, but we don't actually know which ones are more toxic. Mm. So are and we missing a trick there? Should we be diving deeper into this and actually saying we ought to be assessing which are the most toxic and regulating those or assessing those? 
We could be, uh, but the, the reality is we need to be pragmatic about it. We're not very good yet at measuring uh, the different components of particulate matter. And, uh, and we also are not completely sure yet uh, what are the most toxic ones. So there's, uh, there's some studies in the US that show that secondarily formed sulfates uh, are, are, are more toxic. But there's some studies done in London that show that the, the tire and brake wear components of particles are the more toxic. So we actually don't really know which ones we should be regula- regulating. It's just to say that it's actually quite a complex issue. There's a huge amount of research going into it, isn't it? As, as, um, as we've got better at measuring different components of particular matter, understanding um, what the different chemical species are that makes up particular matter, um, we can then start to do health studies and look at how people's health is affected by those different components. Um, so it's, it, what we are sure about is that when we breathe these particles in, they can make a, their way into our bloodstream. They can go throughout our bodies and deposit in all different organs around our body um, and that they can cause effects uh, throughout our body. Okay, so we know on the whole they're not good and we've got to try and tackle them. And in terms of levels, we tend to focus a lot of our attention in the UK on nitrogen dioxide because that's the one that we go, we go over the limit a lot more often than PM 2.5. However, the really only reason why we go uh, over the limit uh, of nitrogen dioxide more than PM2.5 is because the standard for PM2.5 is a lot more lax. So in fact, the health evidence on PM2.5 is stronger. We have more robust evidence on the detrimental health impacts of particles, but we have at the European level quite a a lax standard. So we reach it, uh, the standard much more easily. And as a result, we tend to focus our attention on nitrogen dioxide. But probably PM2.5 is the one that we should be most concerned about. When you say we're lax, is lax in comparison to whom? Are other colleagues within Europe or... Uh, no, so the whole. So to give you some examples, uh, the the standard for PM2.5 for the whole of Europe is uh, 25 micrograms per cubic meter. The uh, WHO recommendation is 10, so 10 versus 25. In, in the US, uh, the, uh, the standards are 12 micrograms per cubic meter for California and 15 micrograms per cubic meter for, for the whole of the US. So they have much more stringent standards than, than we do, which tends to surprise people. There's some indication that policymakers are starting to latch onto this. So I think the mayor of London has announced a name to achieve 10 micrograms per meter cubed in London. Um, but yeah, that's right. There's hope. Yeah, yeah, there is there's hope. hope. Um, the practicalities <laughs> but, of that are another thing. Yeah, and and if you look at some of the the clean air zones, I mean, we've we've got the nominally got the legislation and the programs in place, haven't we? But we're actually failing to meet a lot of those clean air zones in lots of the cities in the UK. So, I mean, we're talking about London, but it's a picture that's replicated all across the country. And in fact, in some cities, it's probably worse because the provision of public transport is not as good getting into the city or getting around the city. So you know we. We're in danger of, of polluting a lot of our, 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 our nation, not just those of us who are based in London. Yeah, lots of cities in the UK are having to consider ultra low emission zones or uh, zero emission zones. I think Oxford and Bristol are the most advanced in terms of that. 
that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> so, what, 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 how can we address this subject? Because obviously, I mean, I mentioned in the introduction, we, you know, we love our cars. We want to be able to travel. We want the flexibility to travel. What are some of the kind of bigger projects that you're thinking about, particularly some of the work that you've been doing, Audrey? Because you've been looking at how we might change our relationship with transport generally, haven't you? In terms of your behavioural studies and and that's, you know, that's maybe right. getting us out of cars and thinking differently. That's right, and. And perhaps, I mean, I'm not sure we love our cars. <laughs> it's a good question. I think, I mean, that's that's one, it's an important research question. Quite Do we like really... them to have 30 million of them. <laughs> but in fact, in the, in, in cities, in London, uh, most people don't drive. So, but there is a minority of people who drive who then impose their habits on the rest of us. So it's, it's, well, London in particular is one of those cities where it's, it, it could be relatively simple to get out, get out of our cars if we wanted to. But in order to make that happen, to do a lot more in terms of getting people out of their car, we can't just blame people for not getting out of their car. I think a lot of people don't see an alternative simply because the alternatives for them is either uh, poor public transportation for their needs, uh, maybe uncomfortable public transportation for their needs, and alternatives such as cycling and walking, particularly cycling, is simply too scary for them. So one of the major reasons people don't cycle around is simply because they're scared, and they have good reasons to be scared. It is uh, traf- uh, Traffic injuries is the biggest killer, for example, of young people uh, in, mo- in most cities. So there are good reasons to be scared. Also, you inhale a lot of air pollution. We were talking about the air pollution levels in cities. Uh, there's a lot of variations across the cities. And in the transportation microenvironments along the major roads is, of course, where there's the biggest uh, concentrations of air pollution. So when you encourage people to walk and bike uh, in those environments, you also encourage them to inhale more air pollution than if they were to drive. Now, concentrations inside cars are higher than on the sidewalk or on a bicycle, but because you're physically active, you inhale more. Mm. Now, before I scare everybody off, I'd like to say, point out immediately that in fact, all of our research, and I've conducted quite a bit of research on these uh, trade-offs of physical activity and air pollution, and we do find that in general, uh, the health benefits by far outweigh any of the risks associated with increasing air pollution, and also outweigh the risk of traffic injuries. So in fact, people are scared of, of, of cycling, but the reality is it's better for them to cycle, even if they're scared. But to really encourage people to, to walk, to cycle, to embrace a much higher quality of life in the city, uh, we really need to transform the way we, we design our cities so that we have uh, not just cycle lanes, but really, of course, many more cycle lanes, but just environments that are welcoming to pedestrians, to cyclists, to people, uh, uh, even uh, kids playing in the streets and um, uh, neighbor, neighbors talking to each other in the streets, just really embracing a whole new lifestyle of uh, living in our street, having human scale cities. So a lot of my research is really about how to get people to walk and bike and then the impacts of walking and cycling. I can see for new developments, and I'm thinking perhaps of some of the new developments on the outskirts of other cities, not London, so places like Cambridge and you know Birmingham, where you've got new build, and you can build that in from scratch. So you can build in, you know, the idea of a mixed-use road, which is, might be pedestrians and cyclists most of the time, and cars very occasionally, and you can build in cycleways and wider pavements and trees. But what about lots of the cities where we are stuck with what is essentially a kind of industrial post-industrial design so lots of narrower streets lots of victorian buildings lots of older you know older office blocks it's very difficult to reconfigure those spaces isn't it 
So most of the, most of London, most of the cities are actually not uh, are, were not designed around cars originally. So going back to what the streets uh, were like many uh, long long before is 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 not doesn't go. It, it wasn't they were, the cities weren't built around cars originally, particularly in Europe. So it's just a question of of creating the environments that uh, that will encourage people to to uh, to cycle. I don't think the land use itself in terms of the land use mix, the distances, these don't really need to change. It's really just the street design so that uh, so that we're we're safe and and comfortable walking and cycling. So it feels like a big mountain. it does it does require a complete change in the vision of what our streets are for. And I think when you uh, even people who don't uh, who don't drive, uh, they still have that vision that a street is meant for cars to go from one place to another. We did we did a, a intercept survey once in uh, Stratford before they uh, they were going to pedestrianize the Stratford Junction, and we asked people in the streets, "How do you feel about uh, the pedestrianization of this junction?" And we first asked them if they had cars, if they own cars, and people, even people who did not own cars and did not have access to cars, immediately got stressed out at the idea of, "Well, where are the cars going to go if you pedestrianize?" And so in our minds. Streets are just meant for cars, and I think that's the mindset of streets are meant for cars is what needs to change, so that we embrace this idea that actually our streets can be places for all of us to live in, and which will make all of us much healthier and happier. Absolutely, and far more pleasant in terms of kind of noise pollution as well as was was air pollution. But that's fine if we're looking at cities and we're looking at spaces within cities or towns. But what about travelling between places? Because I'm obviously a lot of your research mark must be around those bigger transport issues because because while the concentration of pollutants builds up in small spaces like the cities, it must happen between cities and between towns as well, mustn't it? We must be pumping out quite a lot of pollution and emissions as we travel from, you know, London to Glasgow or wherever we're going. Back on the point that you mentioned about new builds, um, so unfortunately I think a lot of new build areas have been built without thinking about transport provision. So they have been built to rely on the car. The only way that you can get to some new build estates is through driving. Um, there's a real lack of thinking about rail and bus networks. Um, back to the point about sort of um, the wider transport issues. I think often in cities, um, there's a lot more that we can do. The population density in cities is such that um, public transport is more viable. There's more people to share the load of the cost of putting on a public transport service. In rural areas, we've seen bus um, bus services reduced uh, across the country. Um, and there's a different relationship, I think, in rural areas to the car, different behaviours going on. Um, so, so yeah, the, I think the distinction between city and, and, and rural areas, or, or at least less densely populated areas um, is, is important to make. But if we're going to change this, we are talking about masses of investment, aren't we? I mean, we're talking about a huge new investment in public transport infrastructure systems rather than investing. And what we seem to love investing in in this country is roads. You know, we're but always it, building roads and making our motorways smart, and which just means there's more traffic on them. So I think that it does, it does require investments, but it also means a lot of savings in terms of, of, of our health in particular. If we, uh, if we transform our, our cities, our neighborhoods, our streets so that people are able to walk and bike more, we're reducing air pollution levels, hence we're reducing uh, all the health 
uh, impacts of, of air pollution, which are very costly. We're also encouraging people to be physically active. So we're increasing uh, physical activity levels at the population level. It's very difficult to get people to find the time in the day and the motivation to, to, to take physical activity, one of the biggest drivers of health uh, in, in, in our cities today. So it's if we create those environments, then we're making a lot of saving, savings health-wise, both for physical activity, air pollution, noise, but also the general quality of life. You decrease. So we, we see, for example, in some of the research I've been conducting, that people who, uh, who cycle reduce their levels of stress, reduce their, improve their, uh, their sense of, of personal health, know their neighbors better, have reduced their sense of social isolation. All these things which have measurable health impacts and also uh, mean uh, we can put a monetary value on all, on all these things. So it's some it's investment, but it's also a huge cost saving to go that route. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you within within an urban context. But if we're talking about outer urban and, and extra urban and, you know, trying to get lots of people do not have the ability to get from A to B, in any other way than by car, because the train lines are not there, the bus routes are not there, you know, there's not an alternative. So how do we shift those behaviour changes and what can we do about reducing the whole pollution associated with that kind of transport? So there will be certain journeys that can't be replaced by uh, physical activity, so walking or or cycling. And that's uh, a function because we've grown up in a society with the car. So we've developed... Uh, our cities and the distribution of where people live relative to where they work um, is uh, influenced by the fact that cars are available. So people in, in outside of major cities often will have to requ- uh, rely on a car in order to get to work. And doing the equivalent on a bike might take them an hour or, or whatever it is. Um, so that might might not be feasible in certain situations. The question is, do we then have to rethink, you know, where people live and work? Um, or is there another way in which we can reduce uh, uh, the the impact of, of transport? And and technologically, that would be done by reducing the emissions or the impact of the, the, the transport activity. So um, electric vehicles are, are sort of talked about as being uh, an option to re- reduce the impact of transport for those. And they would benefit those journeys where you can't replace uh, uh, a car journey with a, a, a walk, walk or a cycle. Um, so with an electric vehicle, it still requires electricity from the grid, um, but from the tailpipe of the vehicle, there are no emissions. In fact, there's no tailpipe because there's no combustion engine. That's not to say that the vehicle emissions are zero. So there's still um, particulate matter produced from from the brakes and wearing of the tires. Um, so electric vehicles aren't completely zero, but they have a lower emissions footprint, as it were, than, than a, a typical um, diesel or a petrol car. But the widespread uptake of electric vehicles is just not happening. I mean, partly because I think they are still at a premium in terms of cost. Um, people are anxious about the lack of charging points, aren't they? And this is a conversation we've had on the pod in the past, is that it's fine, again, it's fine in the cities, but but the problem very often if you live in a city, you can't park your car on the drive, you've got to park it in the street or somewhere away and you can't charge it overnight. And so there's those sorts of issues. And then of course, they're not completely environmentally friendly in the sense that they have 
batteries which require lithium which are themselves is, itself is a, is a is a potential pollutant and is a, you know not necessarily a very eco-friendly material yeah i think anybody who's seen any kind of research on the the health of the miners uh, who are who extract uh, the, the components that we need for the the batteries is just enough to turn you off uh, uh, any electric appliance in fact any electric batteries and yeah. electric vehicles for and then the you've rest got of dis- your life disposal issue as well I and mean, once you've used the battery and it's reached its the end of its life cycle what do you do and how do you dispose of it safely so so that's a it's quite a mixed picture this isn't it it is quite a complicated picture so um the, in order to produce the batteries, not only are there the sort of resource issues, the, the rare earth metal issues, so the fact that um, our battery technologies today rely on cobalt, um, which is a, a metal that, that is pretty rare in the, the earth's crust. Um, there's also the issue that the batteries take a lot of energy to produce. Um, so when we're looking at electric vehicles and comparing them to uh, conventional internal combustion engine vehicles, we should be really considering the life cycle impact of the vehicle um, and how much are we going to be driving that vehicle. So if we're buying an electric vehicle to only drive it 3,000 kilometers per year, um, then overall we're not going to be benefiting the environment because um, in order to maximize the benefit of an electric vehicle, you have to use it a lot. You have to use it and drive it a lot in order to take advantage of the fact that emissions during its use phase are very low. And also there's that issue about changing your car, isn't there? Because, you know, the amount of embedded carbon in a car is very high. So if you've got a car that functions fairly well, adequately, and you drive it in a, an environmentally friendly way, and it's possible to do that, isn't it? Then you're probably better off doing that than trading it up for a for, for an electric one. Because there's, we were having a conversation weren't we, earlier about changing the way people drive on motorways, for example, to reduce emissions and pollutants. And there are things we can do now, even if we can't afford to go out and buy an electric car. There are certain things that you can do to improve the fuel efficiency of your driving style, so more smoother driving. This also has a benefit in terms of the um, air pollutant emissions that would be produced. Um, It's certainly not sending them to zero, um, but it is giving you say, reductions of anywhere between 10 to 20%. Um, It's something that's been um, trialled on motorways in the UK, so reducing speed limits from 70 miles per hour down to 50 miles per hour um, in order to reduce air pollution impacts around motorways, particularly where they go around major towns. So Newport in Wales is one area where this has been done. And also recently the Netherlands um, introduced a new speed limit um, in order to um, tackle air quality, so specifically to reduce uh, nitrogen dioxide concentra- concentrations in the country. The speed limit's been reduced from 130 kilometers per hour to 110 um, in order to tackle traffic emissions. And that was prompted by quite a serious situation, wasn't it? In terms, yeah, of- it's almost, I mean, it's a, a national crisis where all construction projects were frozen um, because the country was not meeting its obligations on air quality. They did the same thing when I was living in Barcelona. They, they also reduced uh, uh, vehicle speed for, uh, on highways coming into the city. The outcry, the outrage mm. <laughs> against that was absolutely amazing. You'd think that's quite a simple, yeah. you know, low-hanging fruit. Well, not in Barcelona, I can tell you. So yes, you probably were right that people do have that love, their, their love for their cars. And speaking of speeds, I think probably the one best thing we could do in terms of 
of regulation of vehicles in cities is to absolutely limit at 20 kilometers an hour for every single car. And there's a technology to do that. So there's a technology uh, that already exists for um, uh, electric scooters to, to limit them to a specific s- a speed when they enter a zone of that, that's been pre- uh, specified. We could do that quite uh, relatively soon. Well, once uh, we could, relatively soon, we could we can uh, integrate that for cars. And I think once we've made cars the the boring thing they should be incredibly slow incredibly boring then it will make also uh, all the other modes much more attractive so i think that's probably a a, a good avenue which no, we we don't ever think about it, but that's probably a very good way to get people out of their cars to realize that in fact for the journeys that they do in cities now i understand you're saying they're not only uh, journeys within cities there are also uh, journeys in suburban areas that have uh, low public transportation in rural areas. And in order to rebalance those, to, the, in order to tackle the, the, the journeys that are for more the suburban type of areas, we need to develop transit and transit-oriented developments around those uh, harder-to-access areas so that we densify around the, dance, uh, the, the, uh, the transit lines and we create pl- places where people can have an alternative. So there, there, there are many uh, zoning uh, laws that can be put in, be put in place to make sure that we have the densities uh, along the transit line that makes it uh, happen. So it's it's completely possible to even deal with with those more suburban types of, of transport and create uh, more active travel solutions, including public transportation. And and this is one area where cities and high density population actually is beneficial for the environment because it. There's lots of evidence to suggest that um, the amount of energy that we consume for our travel activity and therefore the CO2 emissions that result from that, so the global warming emissions, or greenhouse gas emissions, uh, significantly reduce where we live in um, areas with high population density because it enables public transport and, and low carbon, uh, low emissions modes of transport. Um, to and, be viable. Yeah, and I think a lot of people decide that they want to go live out, uh, outside in the country or in the suburbs so that they can have their house and their garden, access to green space. We can actually change that, transform that so that there is green space and gardens around our house in the city. There's no reason for us to have to go out of the city and get in a car to be able to access green space. If we get rid of the cars, there's plenty of space to, to, to implement uh, trees, green space, uh, shrubs, etc. So I think we really need to be rethinking again. I know I'm repeating myself, but rethinking uh, uh, completely the way that we design a city so that people actually want to stay in the city. They don't want to go and live in their suburban house with their private garden because they, they can have access to that that green space and that fresh air around their home within uh, within the city if we really trans- transform that. But those suburbs are really important, actually. And when they were first designed, you know, if you look at some of the suburbs in in and around London, you know, wide streets, which would have been tree lined, everybody had a front garden. And that was really important because it prevented water runoff and it gave you some, you know, some space. And and all of those have been paved over so people can put their cars on them. We've now got the problem with, with, with flooding because there's nowhere for the water to go and we're losing, you know, so there's lots and lots of things that we could reverse, aren't there, to recreate those spaces that are actually more pleasant for people to live in and that idea of the garden city and the garden suburb which was so prevalent in the 30s wasn't it and that was the ideal you know you had a bit of a plot and somewhere to mow the lawn and and you know slightly sort of idealistic probably but much more pleasant places to live but still with an access route into to where you work that's right stevenage is is 
you know, a prime example of, of that. So it's the first new town um, designed to allow people to cycle to work uh, with a really great network of um, segregated cycle lanes. Um, and there were forecasts um, back when the town was built uh, that you know, the majority of the population would be cycling to and from work and, 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 and for, for journeys that they needed to do. Um, in fact, we've seen the, the you know the, the opposite happen. So the car has prevailed in Stevenage, and um, there's multiple reasons why that could be. Um, Didn't Stevenage have the first pedestrianised shopping centre, shopping mm-hmm. district? Yeah. Um, it also, so as well as putting in a really great cycle network, they also put in a really great road network, um, and so there was uh, you, you know the groundwork done to enable cars to prevail. Um, and that went along with you know all sorts of other societal sort of changes that 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 happened that sort of meant that the car became embedded in our in our sort of society. Yeah, I was probably thinking in a further back because Stevenage was sort of the sixties. Yeah. So I was probably thinking back to the kind of twenties and thirties with places like Wellin and some of those garden suburbs, which were were much more kind of people friendly because they had that more of that sense of people sized, you know, buildings and walkways and things. But but there's a lot more that we can do. I just want to ask you, Audrey, before we kind of wind up, how much of this is stick and how much of this is carrot? Because a lot of your work is around behaviour change. And we've talked about, you know, reductions in car speeds and we've talked about putting in zones and things. How much do we need to incentivise people as well as kind of, you know, punish them for poor transport behaviour? So I think I think we need to do everything. We need to do all of the above. I, I think probably the, our best bet is uh, to simply create environments that make it the easy and obvious option to walk, bike, take public transportation. So yes, that that's uh, is that a carrot or a stick? Well, I think it's completely a carrot <laughs> because it's actually uh, it's creating beautiful environments, redesigning our cities for people. So what we thought was going to be beautiful in gardens and in, in, in garden cities and out in uh, uh, in 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 the twenties, as you were saying, well, actually making it happen, but in the city center, in in the dense cities, not necessarily on on your, because we know it doesn't work to create those the suburban uh, uh, garden oriented cities. So we can make that happen and and make people realize that that's really that's the easiest thing to do. Again, if we limit uh, car uh, speeds to 20 kilometers an hour, some people will see that potentially as a stick. Uh, it's uh, it will uh, in- indeed make people realize that it's not the the best the best option. And and just to to link this back also to something that I think is something you talk a lot about in in, in your post- podcast, which is also the long distance travel. I think if we really invest carefully into our cities, so that we be- they become places. That are that are healthy and happy, people are not necessarily going to want to go and fly off to the Bahamas every time they 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 have a chance and every time they they have a a holiday because we can we can actually there's so much to explore within our cities and if we make the cities a places that that are for people that are good to live in we can go and 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 explore here rather than have to find an, a, a long distance place to escape to and take our uh, and fly to. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I, I agree with what Audrey said. I'd, I'd just be careful not to completely demonize travel. Um, you know, I think there's lots of benefits that we extract from from traveling. There's sort of international relationships that, that we build up across countries. Um, we extract 
huge amounts of benefit from being able to transport people and goods a- a- across the across the world. So we we shouldn't completely, um, in my view, be, be aiming for a zero transport society where we don't travel anywhere. But we we do need to really think hard about how to make our transport cleaner. Um, you know, and there's there's really you know, scary predictions or forecasts for um, how travel activity is going to increase across the world. So 50% increase in passenger travel, 70% increase in freight travel. Now, is all of that increase um, desirable? Well, maybe not, but some of that is going to happen and we have to really think hard about how to, how to make it cleaner to reduce the impact on the environment. Yeah, so and it's always a balance, isn't it? And we have to moderate. I mean, maybe we have to do a little bit less, um, all of us, so everybody gets some benefit, but also work continually and use the science and the technology and the innovation to actually make those modes of transport as clean as they can be moving I, forward. I think at the moment people don't get the right signals in terms of how impactful one mode of transport is versus another mode of transport. So um, before we came on air, we were talking about cost. And the cost of public transport versus the cost of driving. And often it's more expensive to take a train than it is to drive the same trip. Um, and also about, you know, often it's cheaper to fly a low cost airline than it is to get the train across to Europe. Um, so the price signals have to be right. Um, and people could argue that that's a, that's a stick. Um, but you could also argue that that's a, you know, carrot for the other modes that aren't being um, properly priced at, at this time. So we're not properly pricing um, the what are called the externalities, so the, the impacts of, of our travel activity th- that it has on the environment um, into the price of a ticket that we would buy. Yeah, so there's an argument there for carbon pricing, isn't there? Which is another whole area of discussion. Carbon, but Yeah, carbon pricing, you could include air pollution pricing and the yeah. health costs as well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and on, in terms of, uh, of investments and, and, and not demonizing cars, I do think, though, we need to be very careful that when we make people feel better about their behaviors if they buy an electric car, I think there's a lot of an investment into the electric vehicle world, which is an opportunity cost. It's, it's distraction from what really needs to happen. So I think there is a real danger that if we all decide, okay, well, going for electric vehicle is, is I'm going to do my share and I'm going to um, benefit um, uh, our health and society. Well, um, it might be putting, bringing people in a direction which, in fact, is not the direction we want to take. And it's, uh, and it's, it's an investment to something that means that there's not going to be an investment somewhere else. So I think we do need to be careful about making sure that we, we do, as, as, you, as you say, I mean, I, I completely agree with what you're saying and, and we shouldn't be completely demonizing, but we also need to be careful about not making people feel okay that it's once they have their electric vehicle, it's okay. But, but also, I mean, just to extend that point, um, is technology going to deliver fast enough in order for us to meet the emissions reductions that are required in order to... Um, not exceed 1.5 degrees or two degrees warming across the world and you know with the uh, electric car sales at around about two percent um of, of new car sales in the uk um i think the answer is probably no at that level so a huge acceleration of that would need to would need to happen mm. and at the same time we do need to also be thinking about how much we travel whether we can change our activities change our behaviors so much of this 
discussion is like so many things we talk about in the pod is to be sustainable it's about changing behaviors and very often that's about doing less of something whether it's consuming or travel or whatever not saying it's banned altogether and living a you know hair shirt existence but we have to just moderate our behaviors don't we and maybe think differently about that so you know we haven't even talked about car sharing but the idea that you know as you said people who live in the city tend not to use cars so you know if you need a car is there car sharing there's all these other ways of approaching these issues which is about just changing people's behavior behavior but, gradually but but, but in a way but that's it's significant. not but it's not necessarily just uh doing less of something and that's i guess that's the point i'm trying to make is we, it's not necessarily just a sacrifice it's actually improving our our cities so that we do more of something better for us. Oh, absolutely, yes. So, so I think I think we tend to think of, of both air pollution and climate change as something that's really negative and, and scary and that we need to make sacrifices in our lives. Well, no, actually, we can invest into our cities so that we have a, a nicer city where we, we, we improve our lives. So I think that's a, a vision that we need to uh, help people espouse and we're not doing that enough. The hopeful thing is that uh, young generations are not even learning how to drive anymore because they realize that we don't need cars in cities like in big cities and like in London. So there is hope. But that's a bit long term. There's always hope. And the pod always likes to finish on a note of hope because it's really important. Thank you both so much. Absolutely fascinating. Way too much to discuss in one short podcast. So we'll have to have you back. And it's been a great pleasure to have you here. So thank you. Thanks thank for inviting you. us. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>